Welcome to season three of Song Chronicles. I'm so excited to be back and especially thrilled to share with you today a conversation with my good friend, Mark Rubel, whom I met when I was studying audio engineering at the Blackbird Academy in Nashville. He's not only the director of education there, but he's also produced amazing music. Mark loves to perform with his bandmates of decades, Captain Rat and the Blind Rivets, where he plays bass and tells me the outrageous stage costumes feel normal to him and his teacher clothes feel like the costume. Mark has a gift for making audio technology seem accessible to everyone. He says, if you can operate a car radio, you can operate a recording studio. I got together with Mark to hear his perspective on what teaching and performing have in common and how he sees production and mixing as a unified field of sonic storytelling. My first guest of season three of Song Chronicles, Mark Brubel. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I'm so glad to be able to. Really great to see you. So I would tell people about how you started with the Blackbird Academy and how you and John McBride realized that there was this gap of students going into the industry who didn't know how to set up a microphone, didn't know hands-on stuff because so many students were being trained in the box. If you want to say any more about that, feel free. I have a bunch of questions to ask you. As you know, I am nonlinear. <laughs> and we love that. So can I ask you about where you grew up and how you grew up? Also, a lot of what you do, aside from recording and performance, and I have seen that you wear sometimes crazy outfits, when you're teaching and you have all these students who come in every six months and know nothing about you, you really have to be a performer to a certain extent. And so it isn't so much about technical knowledge, but you have to keep the attention of super restless people who have gotten out of school. Testosterone is at its highest and you've got to hold everybody's attention, which is probably harder than being an opening act for a kiss. Can you talk about how you developed the skills of being entertaining enough to hold people's attention so they can learn? Yes. Well, I've been in the same silly rock band for 42 years. It's uh, some combination of a, you know, American 50s, 60s rock and roll band, some sort of vaudeville semi-comedy parody thing. And uh, somehow I, in my early days of performing, I would stand there looking like I had a toothache and, and wince every time I made a mistake and that kind of thing. And somehow in the early days of this band, I just got liberated by, you know, by rock and roll and that we are Rock and roll, as we play it, isn't meant to be perfect. In fact, it's kind of like we're always pushing to the edge and the wheels are always about to come off, which is kind of my favorite state of a rock and roll band. Like, it's not humble of me, but I sort of liken it to Live at Leeds era, who 
where you can just kind of hear the wheels coming apart. You can hear the band bursting apart all the time, just kind of at the edge of control all the time. So somehow I managed to come up with this way of being on stage. Uh, but I'm only half joking when I say that what I'm wearing now is the costume. And what I'm wearing on stage is, is kind of more, you know, the way that I feel about things. And, um, you know, that there are times, many times, what, playing in my band where uh, I get into such a flow state that I don't remember what happened on stage. You know, it's a sort of a whirling dervish kind of thing. But as you say, the skills that it takes to engage a class are similar to the ones it takes to engage an audience. You know, how do you make an entrance? What is the very first thing you say? How do you look people in the eye? What kind of energy do you create in the room? How do you latch on to the people who maybe aren't on board and pull them in? You know, knowing something that, that my band does very well, which is how to pace things and bring the energy up and down. You know, if you just go hammer at it all the time, you're going to exhaust people. So it's the pacing and knowing when to change direction. You know, so I, I have all these prepared presentations, but, you know, sometimes I just look at them and I go, okay, they've had enough information. I could see leaking out of their ears. Now we're going to listen to a song or we're going to talk about the history of Brian Eno or we're going to do the history of Louis Louie or, or what have you. So I think you're right. I think it's very allied. I've always said that you establish the relationship with an audience in or possibly with anyone you meet in the first, maybe not 30 seconds, maybe 10 seconds. It's your attitude. It's how you look in them in the eyes. It's your energy. It's how upright you are and how open you are. And if you get it wrong, it can be very difficult to fix if you get it right, you can just kind of keep that energy going. But it's also, there's no stock way to do it because every audience, every class is like a different audience. And they, everyone has its own different group energy and it has its own group personality. And I have to be able to figure that out really quickly. Like, is this going to be where there's one person who's going to try and dominate the conversation, a bunch of people who are going to sit there and hope no, they never get called on? Is it going to be a fairly widespread of energies where there's some people who are tuned in and extroverts. There are people who are interested, but engage in, a, in an oblique way. How many people are there who maybe don't care as much or aren't acting like they care as much as I know they should, you know, are there, are there going to be personalities that I get, that I'm going to have to wrangle, you know, is uh, it going to be the kind of situation where I have to try to contain and direct the energy of the class, or is it going to be sort of class where I have to be the energy and I have to get them all marshaled. And I have to sort of pump them up and fan the flames and all that sort of thing. So I think all of those skills of being performer lead into that kind of deep attachment engagement that I try to have with my students. There's obviously a bonding that takes place after six months of getting to know people and then they move on. And, and I know that you really stay in touch with people as much as you can. And that's wonderful. And how do you detach from each class? I mean, my life was changed from being in your class, and I certainly never knew when I was sitting in that day that I would enroll. I'm so grateful to you for letting me enroll. I know how people feel about you after that experience, and you feel connected with all these people who, some of which have gone on to be incredibly successful. Your family of choice must be a very large family. It is. It's vast. Uh, I'm still in touch with people that I taught 30 years ago or 35 years ago. It's been 37 years of teaching at this point. And I'm still in touch with people I've taught all through the decades. You know, some of them are, you know, grandparents now. I managed to teach the grandson of a former student. That's how long I've been teaching which is actually Alison Krauss's son, Sam, who went through our program. When Alison Krauss, who was in the town that I came from, Champaign, Illinois, when she first got signed when she was 16, 
her mother took my class so that she could have some idea of how things were in a recording studio. And then later when I moved to Nashville, I managed to have her grandson. And so although that makes one feel incredibly old, what could be more rewarding? You know, I, I don't have kids, but I, I have all these relationships with people and I get to live vicariously through them and see all the wonderful things that they get to do and hopefully be of some help to them. You know, I still hear from people that are either they just need to figure out what microphone to buy to mic a piano or or they're at a turning point in their career or life at any stage and they, they need advice. And it's a, a great privilege and joy to get to be in that position. You know, it does take a lot of energy to teach and it takes a lot of energy to stay in touch with people and just, you know, feel all of that. But again, it's like performing. If you do it right, you get more energy from doing it than you put into it, right? I'm more energized at the end of a show than I was when I went in, even though I put out a ton of energy. And it's the same way with the class, if it goes well. Some of them you have to drag along by the scruff of their necks. Some of them maybe, you know, we have a very small number really at Blackbird Academy who kind of maybe just don't really care or don't want to be there. Luckily, I think luckily we're, we're able to get people who by the time they've gone through the admission process, we've already figured out that, that they're there for a reason. They've already figured it out. So it's not what it can be like in some universities where you're teaching to four interested people and a hundred disinterested people. That could be very dispiriting. Although, I don't know. I mean, I used to teach classes of 150 people at the university that I, I, I taught two sections of 150 at the last university where I taught Eastern Illinois University. It's teaching the history of rock and roll. I mean, what could be more fun and what could be more of a show? And I bring in bands and I think not everybody loved it, but I think a lot of people were engaged and pulled in. So it can be done even with a, a large class. And you can even do it with people who maybe don't know how interested they, they actually are. If you can make it interesting enough and show enough love and excitement for the subject, then hopefully it's contagious. And I'd like to think that, well, it's a, it's a funny thing. It's just my, my nature, which is I worry less about the ones who are successful and destined to do great. And I end up putting more energy into the ones who are unsure or hampered in some way, or in some ways I, I worry more about them and I put more energy into them because I know that the, the ones who are all successful and talented are going to, to make it anyway. But I just figure even if they manage to get to the Blackbird Academy, it turns out that making records isn't the only thing in life for them as it is for all of us who teach them. I think to be around people who are excited to do what we do every day and to get to be around each other, to get to be at a place like Blackbird, you know, all, all our other teachers are so skilled and kind and generous and patient. And everybody who works there is pushing together to make this happen. So I think even if they're not destined to do it, just to be around excellence and, and people who care can only be good for them, I hope. Absolutely. We should tell the story of how you came to study with us. Okay. <laughs> the story of how I came is my son, my eldest son, went to the Blackbird Academy, took your class, came back to L.A. and was helping me in my little back studio, which is about eight by 12 feet. And he was doing a fantastic job of organizing it. And he really loved it. He loved to make it ergonomically comfortable and not have cables across the room. And he, he was setting up a patch bay for me. And I was asking questions about, you know, the UA console app and the interface. And he just looked at me and he doesn't even remember saying it. He said, mom, you should go to Blackbird. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to take six months out of my adult busy life and go and take a course in engineering. And he goes, I'm telling you, you should go do that. And I promise you, you will love and enjoy everything in this room and music way more for the rest of your life. And then he forgot he said it. And then it was a summer, summer of 2019. 
And his younger brother wanted to travel, I think had broken up with a girlfriend and said, I just want to travel. I don't want to be home. And I took him to Japan where I'd never been. And then we came to Nashville because my older son recommended that his younger brother do a week of engineering camp at Blackbird. And so I got an Airbnb and me and my younger son stayed in Nashville. And I thought, okay, I'm here. Got some songwriting. I'll sit in in Mark Rubel's class because my son told me I really should. And I wrote you and you said, yeah, come on in. And before I knew it, I wanted to cancel every songwriting thing that I had booked the whole time there and just stay in your class. And the more days I was in there, I think I was very fortunate in my timing. I think I'd missed four days or something. And I just have to stay here. I had to take this class. And uh, fortunately, there was a space that you allowed me to. And that is a story. Yeah, I followed my son's footsteps into engineering school. And what a joy it was having you with us. And, and you were able to bring every every class, we have just different people and different experiences. And you were able to bring so much insight and into the, the music process, which is what we're about. You know, and where it's not really a technical school. You learn the technique, but it's it's really an art school, I think. And so to be able to talk about, well, the business side and the, the art side and, and the music side, it was wonderful having you with us. That, that was a, uh, an amazing class. We had a lot of interesting and different personalities in there. It was a sort of bristling with energy and really a, quite a time. It was quite a time and it influences me to this day. It is a, it was hugely impactful for me. And also just the variety of things that you brought to the table. I mean, some of it was just entertainment and fun, like the strobe tuners that made pictures and people on bicycles, you know, like that was fun magic tricks. I can imagine that there's some of those that you have in your pocket for when people are, I know what I'll pull out of my pocket when they're really tired of technical stuff. This will blow their minds. And it did. But yeah, that was fantastic. But Mark, you have a legacy beyond just the Blackbird Academy, because no one can really do your job quite the way you do it. It's not like you're filling a role and then someone else can do your role. You bring a unique brilliance to what you do. I mean, people in the class would refer to you as wizard, and you do have those qualities of brilliance that are infectious. And that is the gift of being in your class is that you get infected by your enthusiasm about performance, songwriting, recording, microphones, uh, attitude. I mean, all the recording studios we went to visit. I mean, all of it. Your enthusiasm is really the thing. You're too kind, but I mean, I, I do care about all this stuff and I do love it. And so what could be better than getting to talk about it with people and share the adventure? I, I mean, I really could not be a luckier human being. You've never met anyone luckier than, than me, you know, and getting to play music and make music and make records and then just talk about gear and <laughs> records and music and meet my heroes, you know, meet all these people that I'm, I'm amazed by and go to all these wonderful little... Um, I call them pirate ships, all these little studios. Everyone's a little ecosystem. Everyone's a little microculture, a little, uh, you know, and, and to just learn all these, all this wisdom from people that made some of the records that I most love that changed my life. And to be at a place like Blackbird, it's just a magical, a magical place. It's not just the equipment. The equipment is amazing, but it's just that ecosystem and the, the, the people that are in it and the people that come and go. And to be able to teach there and to be able to learn there is, is wonderful. And I, 
will never stop learning. I'm always driven by curiosity. And when I was teaching in Illinois, there was a fair chance that I was the person in the room who knew the most about audio. In Blackbird, I was a fair chance I'm the person who knows of the hundredth most about audio in a square mile. And I can easily <laughs> access other people and, and bring them in. And, um, and so I'm constantly learning and writing things down and diving down rabbit holes and learning new things. So it's, a, it's just a gift. And I'm so grateful to be able to share it with people. You have referred to what you learn at Blackbird as a freeze-dried education, meaning it's so much all at once that you can't possibly unpack it and realize what you're learning while you're there. And that later, as you come across something, you remember, oh, yes, I remember we talked about this and it starts to sink in. I have found that. I feel like I need to go back and take another course just as a refresher, but it is a lot of enthusiasm and there is a lot of gear and it's amazing that so much of it was invented, you know, before the 1960s, the stuff mm -hmm. that we're using in there. So I want to ask you about Champaign, Illinois. Did you grow up there? Well, my joke is I never actually grew up, so I can't really say that I <laughs> grew up anywhere. Um, yeah, I lived in Champaign, Illinois most of my life from when I was about two until I moved down to Blackbird in uh, 2012, I guess it was. And then we started in 2013. So I lived there for a very long time, but also lived in many other places. I, lived, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey, lived there when I was in second grade, lived in New York City, La Jolla, California, Montreal, Amsterdam for some months where my wife is from. Um, lived in Denmark, lived in France for over a year as a kid living as a little French kid with a beret and a knee socks and, you know, a little cravat tie and a attache case going to a French private school where no one spoke English. So when I was eight, I became a little French guy, like little Petit Nicolas, you know, riding the subway and lived in Boulder, Colorado. So, you know, so been kind of all over the place, but mostly had the great joy and privilege of living in Champaign, Illinois, which is, as I tell everybody, a magical place. It's a, it's a university town that's small enough where you can stand out and know everyone but not so big that you are just a, a cog. And having university, there's an amazing amount of culture. There's always been an incredible music scene. And to this day, the level of musicality and the level of musicianship uh, is staggering. I think people who, people who live there don't realize what an incredible resource they have. Just a, a fantastic place. I played a show this a few days ago. It was the 100th anniversary of my high school, which was university high school. It started in 1922. You know, Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, my, our graduating class, I think, was 29 people. Mm -hmm. Very small, mostly, uh, you know, in the 70s, just weirdos and whiz kids and uh, hippie mad scientists and quasi-revolutionaries. And uh, so it was really a fascinating place to, to be from. And to this day, I mean, I got, if it weren't for Blackbird, I would probably would be happily there uh, as a part of, again, an, an ecosystem in a small town that has, well, medium-sized town that actually has a real self-supporting community and supportive community as opposed to music scene where there are great studios, there are great, there are um, record companies, there are record stores, there are venues, there are great teachers, there are great music programs. Uh, there are opportunities to play because it's surrounded by medium-sized college towns and then big towns. And so it has all the ingredients it needs for a complete garden, like a terrarium, you know, you get a terrarium where you have everything in a snowball. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like that. It was a, a wonderful place to be. But then I got magically plucked out of my little haven where I was all holed up like a hermit crab in this <laughs> brick building full of recording gear. 
and rocketed to Nashville. And you have a studio there that has a whole bunch of recording gear. Sure do. Yeah, I bought Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy's old studio, which I used to take my students to when I would, we would visit Nashville from Illinois. Uh, and it's a, it's a lovely place where in three acres we've got deer and skunks and foxes and owls and uh, has a separate studio building. And I have all my gear, which is a ton of gear. I've got this Demidio console. It was built by Frank Demidio, who built the Sunset Sound consoles and Princess console and so forth. They're very rare. It's a custom-built API board that was made for Studio C at Fantasy Studios. So it was made for basically to make Credence records. And I've got a giant ton of equipment in there, of course. My joke is that the reason I hang out with John McBride, who has an incredibly huge amount of equipment is just to make myself look like I don't have a lot of equipment. So it's like standing next to somebody that's fatter than you in a photograph. So you just go, I don't have a lot of gear. This guy has a lot of gear. So yeah, at the moment, my studio isn't functional. I've been writing a book for the last three or four years. And so I'm getting close to the end of that and deciding what, what I'm going to do with the, all that stuff. But I've got some very cool, rare, and a lot of weird stuff, and interesting old instruments and all that. But I also have access to Blackbird, <laughs> where we have everything in the world. And I get to record there with the students once in a while. And it's been amazing. I've gotten to record Jim Lauderdale, who's just a sweetheart and a delight and a brilliant talent and so kind to our students. And I've been working with Jeff Coffin, who's a great jazz sax player, plays with the Dave Matthews Band, and working with Colin Linden, who's a great producer, who played with the band and Bob Dylan and Lucinda Williams and all these people. So I've been lucky to get to make some cool records down here in addition to teaching and all that. Yeah. I would love to come to your studio and record with you sometime. That would be a blast. That would be a blessing. Can we talk about your book? You're writing a book and have been for the last four years on the history of recording studios. Correct. So it's uh, called The Great American Recording Studios. It's a follow-up to a book by Howard Massey called The Great British Recording Studios. Uh, the subtitle in both is being of the 60s and 70s, but even so, I mean, the 1960s and 70s in America was very much a boom time for recording studios. So I think Howard covered maybe 50 studios in his book. And I'm sort of slashing and burning to try to keep mine to like 250. So it's impossible. To, uh, I just decided that I'm casting a wider net as to what is a great recording studio. I didn't just want to write about the same 10 that everybody's always written about. I mean, even if you want to write about the truly great studios of that era in America, it just fills up really quickly because we're talking about well, we're talking about the U.S., not luckily, not Canada and Central America, South America. But even so, I mean, if you think of all the great New York studios and all the record plants and all the Detroit studios and all the Chicago studios, all the Nashville studios, all the Memphis studios, all the Muscle Shoals studios, Criteria, all the L.A. studios, Caribou Ranch in Colorado, uh, the studios in Texas, the studios in Pacific Northwest, it's, it's huge. And I, I have a problem, which is I don't want to leave anybody out, but I know I have to. And the reason it's been taking so long is that I am, it turns out, an inveterate rabbit hole diver. And so every time I encounter another rabbit hole or discover another studio, I go all the way to the bottom of the rabbit hole and find out all the information. And I go, oh, this, here's a really cool story, or here's an obscure piece of equipment, and so on. So I'm trying not to have it become the obscure American studios, but the, the great American recording studios. It's been very interesting and also turned out to be way bigger of a job than I'd anticipated. I thought I was just going to kind of knock it out. And luckily, the publishers have been very patient with me. At some point here, I may be taking a co-writer so we can get this finished and actually get it out there. But I think it'll be, I hope it'll be good. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm doing my best to make it as factually correct as possible to the point of obsession. And it's really difficult because the people that remember the studios 50s and 60s all have differing views. They have no documentation. 
they can't even agree if it was their studio, how big the studio was or what kind of console they have. Many of them have reputations to burnish or vendettas to fight after 60 years. Many of them are no longer with us. So I'm trying to get this, this history down as correctly as possible. And I know that I'm not going to get it all right, but I want to get it as correct as possible. And I also want to really capture the unique time and the unique, unique flavor. Now we go, oh, it's a big deal. There's a recording studio in everybody's phone. There's a recording studio in every bedroom and a laptop. Every garage has a studio. So what? in those days, they were these magical, hidden, unknown temples. I mean, some of them were dingy temples with fluorescent lights, but they were these hidden away places where people were making these magical records. I mean, the, the 60s and 70s, you know, I mean, it was great in the 50s too, but the 60s and 70s, incredible time for music, incredible diversity of music, incredible diversity of environments, you know, from little hippie places to big corporate places with a union guy with a cigar, you know, watching the clock and reading the racing news. All these places were these little oases in the early period. Everybody was building their own equipment, building their own consoles and everything. So they were all very, um, there was a lot more variation. It wasn't until the 70s where you could buy a console off the shelf, for example. So, and a lot of people were just making it up as they went, plus the people. And that's the main thing. I mean, I've got all kinds of just amazing anecdotes and stories about, you can imagine wretched excess, overindulgence, technical disaster, shady characters, heroism, cowardice. It's it's just epic. It's really like a it's like a mythology, and soon it will be mythology. Soon no one will be left. And I want to try to get the story as much as I can. I mean, Brooks Arthur just died. You know, um, I got to interview him and get stories from him. And I'm just sort of racing the clock in some ways. I get to interview Al Schmidt and all these people. And just try to get the stories. But you know, even now these days, the studio, although they can be a little more the same in terms of the kind of equipment that they have, or their layout, or the acoustics, and that's. There's some benefit to that, meaning that you can go to a different studio and get some kind of predictable results. But even now, studios are reflections of the personality, the person whose studio they are. And in those days, it was a crazy menagerie of personalities. And you had some really extreme people. I mean, some total sweethearts like Brooks Arthur, some total lunatics. And some of these places were just, you know, they, they might as well have been pirate ships. Many of them were, you know, actually just extensions of the organized crime and everything in between, you know, or they were extensions of a giant broadcasting company, or they were extensions of somebody that had inherited some money from their aunt, or that just put something together out of sheer spite and bile. You know, it's just, there's so many epic stories. And so I, I hope to be able to tell that in a compelling and also true way. It's almost impossible to get it all true, but I'm going to do my best. I can't wait. Do you want people to write in and help run around and be your assistant? So far, I just had to do all the research myself because I know the thing where I'm going to find the nuggets that other people aren't going to recognize. Yeah. And you know what else? I'm just being a sort of control freak about it. I want it to be so great. I'm going to get a co-writer to help me finish this. What I would love would be if people have factual or entertaining stories of recording in the 60s and 70s or people who were there that wanted to talk with me. I would love any of that information. And I'm also very much looking for photographs. You know, as much care as I'm trying to put into telling the story correctly, I recognize that mainly people are going to look at the photos and go, oh, look at this cool photo of this musician in this studio. And I don't want to publish the same hundred photographs that everyone has seen. You know, just the same picture of Roy Halley and Simon Garfunkel, the same picture of Bob Dylan standing in Columbia. And I've had pretty good success because people are going through their attics and Tupperware containers and stuff. You know, but I, I want to find the, I just want to find new stuff that sheds a light on the amazing era that that was. And also imagine how much things changed from 1960 to 1980. You know, 1960, a lot of people were recording live to mono. By the time we got to 1980, people had multiple 24 tracks synced up. Digital recording was on the horizon. 
it was a uh, it was an incredible technological revolution that of course then led to well you know, went hand in hand with musical revolution and business revolution where people you know had the whole world went from corporate to independent and we had independent producers and engineers and independent musicians it's just a, it's an amazing time you know it would be much easier to write this book if i could have written a 24 volume encyclopedia it's boiling it down to 100,000 words that's really the part of the, the difficulty yeah, that's just an incredible undertaking, and I'm so happy that you're doing it and have been working so dedicatedly. I don't know how you do this. How do you do curriculum, look at test scores, teach a class five days a week, write a book, go on tour and play shows, and record in your studio? Stay married. And stay married <laughs> and feed your cat. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I've always been driven. You know, I'm uh, my father was a brilliant scientist. He was completely driven by what he did. I think I had his example. I'm just driven by what I do. And it's not that it's some mad ambition to be the best or something like that. It's just that I, I feel a responsibility to do everything as, as well as I can. I feel responsibility to the students and to my employer and to the, the, and, you know, the field of music and music making that we're trying to serve. I mean, we created this school to try and get better music makers into the world, or maybe to just try to help people be the best possible music makers that they can be. And that's not a job, that's a mission, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, that's a vocation. And so why would I not work all the time? What else am I going to do? You know, go sit in a chair, lie in a hammock. You know, I, I don't take vacation. Why would I want to? I get to go to Blackbird every day. That's like Valhalla to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, unfortunately, just as a matter of the way that my rather strange brain works, I tend to not be very organized or uh, efficient. So I have to go the brute force method of just working long hours and sort of fighting my own disorganization. My life would probably be easier and better if I were uh, more of, a, of an organized and concerted type. And then I actually took time off, but it's just not the way I'm wired and I have to just deal with it. So what did your mom do? My mother was a journalist, so she was from Denmark. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a refugee from the Nazis during the war, so she separated from her family, had to be smuggled out of, they had to be hidden by the teacher across the street when the Nazis came for them and kicked the door in. Had to be um, smuggled to Sweden, spent the war there, uh, and became a professional journalist at age 16. She took a, a freighter ship from Denmark to the U.S., where she was, I think, the only non-sailor on the ship and went of all places to Williston, North Dakota to become a journalist in a, in a language that wasn't her own. She was probably 18 years old. Long story. So she, she, was, a, she was a writer and then uh, she published a book called Heartland Beach. She wrote human interest stories for the local newspaper and she was amazing at it. She was so smart and so she spoke, both my parents spoke eight languages, each of them. Uh, she was so smart and so brilliant, well-read and you know, read Proust in French and all this. Uh, she was a great uh, connector of humans, of people. By all rights, she should have been the ambassadors to somewhere, or she should have been running a corporation. She was, uh, she was just an amazing person. Everybody who knew her loved her. But, you know, she had her circle of people in Champaign, Illinois. And at a university like that, through the 50s and 60s, 70s, you had the remnants of the Manhattan Project, the people that made the atom bomb. You had all these people from the um, sort of heyday of physics. We had, um, you know, the, these sort of legends of, of science who would come through. And other people, I mean, Robert Moog would go through the house and John Cage. And um, so to be a, a part of that intellectual circle was, was wonderful for her. So that's what she did. And then my dad, as I said, was a mathematician, but he was 
really a Renaissance man. He studied everything. He published in philosophy, he published in biology, but mainly published like 1300 pages of mathematics proofs, which is sort of the equivalent of three encyclopedias or something like that. He created fields of mathematics. He spent all his time working on things that he and about 50 other people on the planet would even know what he was talking about. That's why I don't feel very smart because I got to be around people um, like him all the time. But, but, you know, my saying was if you take science, but high level science where it's not, it's not just equations, it's uh, philosophical leaps of problem solving and uh, finding creative ways to get from one place to another. So that kind of science, and you combine it with what my mother did, which was portraiture in words, and you put them together, you get a record producer engineer, right? Who's making a kind of a technical portrait of someone's essence. And you're trying to portray their personality and, and who they are through sound. So it's, it's a nice combination of those two things. Did you have siblings? Do you have siblings? I do. Yeah. I have a wonderful sister, Natasha. Mm. Uh, she's an uh, artist and painter, and she writes children's books, and is the mother of twins who I adore, who are now 19 years old, to my amazement. Uh, and her husband is also an artist and a painter, and a watercolorist, and a web artist, Dick Detzner. He's one of the most amazing people I've ever known. Uh, and I found out when I was in my 50s that I have a half-brother. So that was a, an interesting surprise when, you know, different people might respond differently to learning that you have a sibling like that. To me, it was a, a beautiful, it was like discovering a room in your house that you never knew had existed, which happens to me in my dreams a lot. Like all of a sudden, it's like there's another dimension of our, of our family that I didn't know. And um, so my half-brother, Craig, who is older than me, and he's a, a TV producer. And he and I are alike in many things. We both love rock and roll. We both love classical music. We both love old cars. It's been a very interesting uh, nature versus nurture kind of separated it, <laughs> you know. Um, and I wish that we had been more in touch through the years, but I, I do talk with him once in a while. And uh, I'm very proud of him. He's, he's a very successful television producer and, um, and thinker. And he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's in his, I guess, late 60s now, and he's taken up playing the piano and he's practicing Chopin every day. It's good for you. So, so yeah. That's beautiful. So how did the Akira Kurosawa mixing exercise go? I haven't done it yet. I'm still threatening it. And what I'm looking for is the right scene of Kurosawa to do this. So to explain when the kind of the, I guess you could call it capstone, where I tie everything together at the end of the six months, talking about what I call my unified theory of production and mixing. So for a lot of people, they go, okay, well, now we've taught recording, we've taught mics, we've taught acoustic, blah, blah. And here's mixing. Okay, you have to put this EQ on and set it like this. You have to turn this knob this way and put these five plugins on, and that's mixing. And I do have other people come in and teach in that sort of prescriptive way, like here's how to mix. Uh, but the way that I teach production and mixing, which when I say unified field, I think are the same thing. Okay, I think that you're actually producing and mixing from the moment you first hear the song and, and conceive it in your mind. You know, you hear the song and it speaks to you and it tells you how it wants to be in the world. And in my admittedly strange brain, I hear the song finished. I hear the production finished. And then I go about trying to realize it, trying to make it real. So um, as far as I'm concerned, you're building the mix the second you put a microphone on an instrument or you choose uh, a key or a tempo. All those things really, and, and all the things that we do in recording, you know, my choice and EQ and delay and blah, 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 and reverb and plugins and all that, those are just all in surface 
of the way that I see in my mind record making and music realization as, which is storytelling. I think that humans in general are just storytelling machines, that our perception is a story that we tell ourselves. Our consciousness is a story that we create or that's you know, some combination of creative for us and, and that we create. I think we're constantly telling each other. This is why, you know, podcasts and YouTube, right? If you think about it, just people telling their stories or relating their stories to other people. And so I think of all this as sonic storytelling. And the way that I teach mixing, where I think they're expecting me to say, okay, here's the secret kid, put these five plugins on and, and all your mixes are going to be killer and they're going to slay and all this stuff. And I don't do that. I basically teach aesthetics, my version of aesthetics and my version of storytelling. I just break it down into all the different sonic parameters that you have. You know, what's there, what's not there, what's left, what's right, what's close, what's distant, what's big, what's little, what has, what's where in the frequency range from bass to treble, what's moving, what's stationary, how many elements are there. All the things that you would do in a painting or a film, you know? Uh, and I can tell you about my head of the comet theory later. But um, so you have all these decisions to make. And I, my plan is, and maybe someday I'll do this, is to try to teach mixing by examining a single scene of a Kurosawa movie, probably one of the samurai movies. But Kurosawa being a filmmaker who's a master of all the elements. So, you know, just you have it in a, like an army comes in with swords that move this way, and a character does this, and then it rains, and then there's some action, and then it pulls away, and there's somebody with a sword sticking out of it, whatever it is. Um, my delusion is that I can teach mixing metaphorically through all of that. Because if you think about a mix, you have the space between your speakers. You have foreground, background, you have left, right, you have up and down. You have a certain number of characters who are highlighted. You have a certain number of characters in the background. So this could be the lead vocal or the duet vocal, and then everybody that's in that's behind. You Things can be, uh, you have depth of feel in the camera. You can have the lead singer in stark contrast. Everything else can be sort of blurry around them. You can have a small number of things in stark relief, like an ACDC record. You can have groups of elements that go together and form pillars of sound in different places that create the background against which the, the protagonist, which would usually be the singer, moves. You know, what's stationary, what moves, what changes color, what doesn't. How do you use color? How do you draw the eye around the picture? This is something that one of my heroes is Walter, really my hero, I know how to pronounce his name, but Walter Merck, M-U-R-C-H, he's a film editor who did, you know, all the Godfather movies and the conversation and uh, the English patient, and I'm forgetting the really big ones, but uh, Apocalypse Now. He talks about all these kinds of things, and I relate them all to recording. One of the things he talks about is something they talk about in filmmaking was eye trace. So how do you draw someone's attention between the speakers or headphones as they're listening? Are they just staring at one character at the station in the middle? When they stop singing or when there's a pause, does something happen over here? There's a little splash over there. Is there a motion that goes you know, from left to right? Is it all those sorts of things? So sorry, long explanation, but so that was the Kurosawa plan was I was going to teach the aesthetics of mixing by analyzing one thing. And I think I'd probably lose all the students and probably just lost all of your listeners too in the process. But if I could pull it off, it would be kind of fun. I get it. And also in the same way that any one part of art form that you do is informed and inspired by other art forms. If you're a recording engineer and you're only in your bedroom and you're only doing that, you know, it, it would pay to take a walk and go to the local art gallery or watch a great film or go to the theater. Everything needs to be informed and influenced by other things. 
which I'm sure you've told us. I'm probably just saying something back to you that I've heard in your class. But And we're very visual, so I think to relate it to visual terms helps people use more of their brain. Yeah. Uh, I'm visual because I'm synesthetic, but I think everyone is to a certain extent. But I think so. And if you think about the art of, well, the art of music making is as old as humans, but the art of recording is about 140 years old. So it's, it's helpful to, to follow things like the history of painting, which is 40,000 years old and probably goes back earlier than that. But, you know, from a, a handprint on a cave wall to an impressionist painting or anything else, there's so much to be learned because I think that the same impulses and choices apply no matter what the art is, whether it's cooking or architecture or painting or literature or filmmaking or records, which I look at as movies for your ears. So you are somebody who, when you're looking at the two monitors, the two speakers, that's the stage for you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, this is just all fascinating. And I know you've had a full day of teaching and you have a super busy life. I want to ask you, related to the moment in time that we are right now, one is COVID. I think I was the last class or maybe this one right before the last one before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you how that has affected things being in a room and the recording environment, teaching environment? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, we were only out for three months during COVID. And three months later, we went back into the classroom with masks. And John McBride spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on uh, medical hospital grade air cleaners and ultraviolet bug zappers in the or, you know, virus zappers in the ventilation, all that. And, you know, we were able to be in there for years without, as far as I know, a student ever catching COVID from another student. It's pretty good for a bunch of people in close close proximity. I think probably pretty lucky. But I'm, I'm glad of that because I like eating and living inside. So that was good for me. So, you know, it was interesting because it brought us a different group of students. In some ways, maybe ones who were kind of more hardcore. And I think it changed some of the students in that we had fewer who were coming. Well, I think that it crystallized things for some people. If For people who are risk averse, they might think, okay, this isn't the time to follow my dream. I better do something solid, um, which is probably not pursuing recording for a living. Uh, but I think we also got a certain number of people who thought, you know what, at this point, global pandemic, everything is less certain than I ever knew. So why shouldn't I pursue my dream? I think we got a certain number of inspired, motivated dreamers. And uh, so it was an interesting group of people in that way. It turns out that even just not being able to see the bottom of their faces, them not being able to see the bottom of mine, it made it much harder to communicate. You know, you didn't realize like how much we communicate just through facial expressions. So I, I, I now I wiggle my eyebrows a lot more when I talk <laughs> and uh, I don't have them here, but my wife made uh, some signs that I could hold up that said, kidding, sarcastic, smiley face, um, et cetera, just to try and convey some kind of emotion because otherwise it's really hard. I say something I think is hilarious and I just see these, you know, these <laughs> deer in the headlights kind of unmoving. Um, but also there was a certain amount of, there's always a certain amount of cohesion and esprit de corps that happens in our classes, partly because what we do is intensive. And so I think that the students bond together because they're going through something. It's, you know, it's, we're not yelling at them, but it is kind of a boot camp in terms of just being hit with a fire hose of, of information. So we've had some very cohesive groups in that way. Um, of course, you know, it was hard because we couldn't, we'd have bands in and we couldn't go into the room with them, uh, all that sort of thing. So it was strange as it was for everyone else, but there are many positive ways to look at it. I mean, first of all, when is there more need for someone to say something that expresses the human condition than in dire global times? This is the first time something like that has happened. I mean, think about um, the plague 
We wouldn't have Shakespeare without the plague. We wouldn't have Isaac Newton without the plague. Um, it is at times like that that people, maybe not as, you know, only, but that people step up and, and do great things. I hope that there's been a lot of great music being made. And then, you know, there's certainly been more music being made. It's interesting that more people, you know, have bought equipment and decide, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to make the great American novel or the great American record. Um, and so that can only be good. I think more music, I think is not a bad thing. And hopefully more greatness in music, which is different, but to be wished for. I also think that our people, the people who are committed to making art, no matter what, uh, have all the qualities that it takes for anyone in a society to survive a buffet like a global pandemic, not to mention, let's just say, all the other things that are going on, if you know what I mean. So what, what am I talking about? I mean, resilience and problem solving and empathy and intelligence and the ability to take difficult things and channel them into positive things. That's what everybody needs to do. But that's hard to do if you've only been taught one way to do things or if you just do one job all the time. We're so lucky in that we can take all the things that happen and re-channel them into something that helps us and then helps others by extension. So that's when the world needs artists. If everything's going along smoothly, which is never really particularly, but if everything's all grand and prosperous, well, then you can get some, some mindless entertainment and that's all fine. And, you know, entertainment has its place too, but this is also a time where people are called upon to make statements and to, you know, understand how serious and important all this is and to make things that last. On a more practical note, it's been interesting to see the ability to record remotely with software and uh, audio movers and that kind of thing, um, where it's possible for people to record people who aren't necessarily in the same town or in the same building. And it's been interesting. I mean, all that technology existed before this, but it definitely got a, got a shot in the arm um, through that. So that's been an interesting thing to see. I have a question about that. And I was going to ask you it before you just brought that up, which hmm. is so much of making music, especially in studios, is experiential. You're there in a room and everybody's playing off of each other. And I'm finding it difficult that I can send files to other people. They can send me files. I can put it all together. But now that it's at the time of mixing the record, I'm finding it hard to make this cohesive sense of all these different experiences in different rooms that happened and figure out like, what's the, what's the holistic, where are all these performers on the same stage now? What would you say about that way of doing recording, of throwing files back and forth? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's another method. And of course, there's something to be said for records that were made with everybody playing in room in, in real time or, uh, you know, playing in different rooms in real time where they can see each other or where they're in the rooms or their amps or in different rooms. Um, because there are literally neurological things that happen where people synchronize brain waves and you just have so many more cues and you can see somebody's foot tapping, you can see them breathe. And so you end up with a much more holistic result. Um, it's interesting because what you're facing as, as somebody who's a performer, right? Somebody who's used to performing music or playing music, what you're facing is something that uh, maybe your son's generations, right? Came up with, well, that's not a good example, but, but their generation, because they're, they're great players. But, but, you know, their generation has come up with constructing music from disparate elements. And then they either try to fit it together into something that's coherent or they leave it incoherent on purpose. And that's part of the story and part of the message. So I would say to a certain extent, you're kind of coming to that angle from the performer's angle. 
And then there are choices to be made. So are we going, you know, and this is, these choices have been, have been had, had to have been made as long as we've had less pollen multi-track recording. We can record things at different times, but does it feel like a coherent whole? And do we want it to? So there are some philosophical decisions to be made there. And then some technical ways to pull things together. And, and sometimes it even comes into things like the kind of groove or pocket that somebody is going to have when they play together. Maybe we have to get in there and micro time and push stuff a little later or earlier to try and make it sit differently. And we have to take into consideration things like the speed of sound delay of some, you're 20 feet from somebody you're 20 milliseconds later. And we may have to do any number of any amount of editing, any amount of that sort of thing. And then in the mixing process itself, we can either like put everything in the same reverb or the same room to try and make it sound like it's in the same room. If everything's direct, we can actually project it into another room, into a room with a speaker and remic the room. So we have some kind of the mixing function of air. I love that. In it. Yeah. Um, you know, or we embrace its untogetherness and, and that becomes part of the story. You know, maybe there's some awkwardness to the song or some awkwardness to the, what we're singing about. And then that becomes an illustration of how we're feeling or how we felt when we made it. So mm -hmm. a skilled mixer can do all those things. They can break things apart. They can uh, meld them together and, and anywhere in between. And I know you're in good hands. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, this has been an amazing thing. I want to leave people, especially future students or anyone who's really interested in recording. Also women, thank God there are a lot more, a lot more gender fluidity in a technical environment of the studio. But let's talk about the word technical. There's something about recording studios where there's knobs and buttons, like I'm looking at an old soundtracks board here. But, you know, one day in my life, I was so intimidated by all the amounts of switches and buttons and realized that it was just one strip from top to bottom that was being multiplied across the, the board and then made it less scary. Oh, I just need to learn what's on the top to the bottom. But also how much of it, yeah, there's things like don't record too hot. Don't blow up the amplifiers. Plug things in in the right order. You know, don't let the musicians trip over the cables. That's it. I got your course, right? I graduate now. Mm -hmm. uh, but how much of it is something that is, here's a quick thing I would say. Recording engineers in the last 15 or 20 years suddenly became rock stars they never were rock stars as far as I could tell before. They were quiet behind the scenes. You didn't hear much from them. You know, they moved faders. And then suddenly people were flying all around the world to interview them and ask them questions about things. And suddenly to be a mixer and recording engineer are like being rock stars. But is it something that's that mysterious that an ordinary person can't just walk in and figure out and learn how to do? Absolutely not. First of all, if, if an engineer thinks they're a rock star, they probably have a misplaced sense of self. Uh, we exist to serve the music and to serve the musician. So if, if we're glorifying ourselves in the process, that's understandable from a business point of view, but that I think that's misplaced. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, if you can operate a car radio, you can operate a recording studio. It has all the same functions, volume, bass, treble, on, off, you know, left, right. I love that. Yeah. So if you can operate a, a car radio, I used to say stereo, but nobody has stereos anymore. So you can do this. This is not a technical, um, well, it's a technical art, but it's not like a technology school, like you're going to go learn mechanical engineering. Yes, you learn how to deal with Pro Tools, you learn how to troubleshoot, you learn how to set up a console and where to point the microphones. And But you do that like any artist would, you learn the techniques so that you don't have to think about it. Okay. 
if, if you're painting a painting, you don't want to be standing there going, which end of the paintbrush do I hold and which two colors do I blend to get what I'm looking for? So you learn all that stuff so you can forget about it and devote yourself to the, the soulful and caring making of music. And anybody can learn this, okay? Pro Tools, you know, it's just a word processing sound. Um, so do not be intimidated by this. And we and I want more women in every part of music and especially on the technical side. Um, we don't have enough women in our program. It makes me very unhappy. I've wanted to have 50% or more in our live school. We have, at the moment, we have eight women and six men. So that makes me really happy. But we, we generally don't have enough women in our program. And I think it's partly because people come and they see a bunch of dudes in the class and then they think, oh, maybe I don't belong here. You do belong here. You belong in this in this profession. We desperately need you. We want everybody in this because everybody should be making art. It shouldn't be up to one demographic or anybody to, to, to do it in one particular way. Everybody has something to contribute to this. And if it's for you, then you should you should join us. I should say, and we have the Women's Audio Mission, which is a wonderful organization. I think it's called soundgirls.org. It's a wonderful organization. There's a lot of work being done in the Audio Engineering Society. We do our best. We have some scholarships and things, but we really want, and I really want more women in, in here. If, I, if we ever hire another faculty person, I'm going to want it to be a woman just so that everybody's comfortable. I actually, yeah, so there you go. Plus it's fun. Yeah. It's and then I would say not just men and women, non-binary and everything in between, too. Let's have all of it making art. Let's all of it in the technical world. Please. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't accept people. We don't tolerate them. We celebrate them. I, I want everyone who feels it in their heart to, to come and study with us or anywhere to, to take part in, in this magnificent adventure and undertaking. One last practical question. So somebody who wants to be in the arts did not grow up like you, did not grow up like me. Maybe we're brought up, get a normal job, get, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, get something that's going to pay well, and then you can do the arts. How do people express themselves? And we so need it and the world needs people to tell stories. How does somebody do that and survive if they want to do it and they're finding it hard to make the jump into the risk-taking involved to do that. Well, it's difficult and it's easy for me to say, uh, but, it, but it's difficult if, if you have responsibilities and you have a family and, uh, or you feel a responsibility to, to do that kind of, of work, whatever it is, it's, you might mean doctor, lawyer, could be anything, right? Um, there is, there's no shame in that. And it's also totally possible to make the art yourself now. Uh, you don't have to go into a fancy recording studio. And that's not what our school is about, by the way. It's about giving people the power to, to do it themselves, whether in a big studio or, or at home. Uh, the tools are so much more affordable and accessible now. And the knowledge is so much more affordable and accessible now that if somebody needs to work a job and they can do this in their spare time or it's, it becomes their, you know, their avocation, there's no shame in that. And, you know, Charles Ives, the composer, he was an insurance agent his whole life. And, there, you know, in some ways, there's something to be said for not putting all your eggs in the basket of your art, because then if your income and your security is completely dependent on your art, it can put so much pressure on it that can make it, it can make it hard to do it. And you can lose sight of the reason that you do it in the first place. Um, but if you feel called to do it completely, then you can work towards that. And every hour that you spend doing it, every hour that you spend trying to do it better and caring about it and soaking in what other people do gets you closer there. So the practicalities of life are, 
or complicated. It would, it would be easy for me to say, well, I'm just give everything up or go drive Uber until you can afford to come and study with us. I mean, at least where we are, we're able to start people off at a higher level, typically, if, if they are excellent themselves. Um, but it's, a, you know, any of these arts, especially in the United States, where there's not really much support, it's a difficult way to, to make a living. So I think it's really, you have to be the kind of obsessed person who, as I like to say, you have to be the kind of person who can't not do it, who's driven to do it at all costs. And if that's you, uh, we definitely understand because that's us too. Um, you don't have to be. If you are, I think you kind of can't help it. So, and then you find a way. People always have. Yeah. Love, you know? That's great. That's a great answer. And I thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's an honor and a privilege to talk with you. Thank you for letting me babble. Thank you so much for being able to do this. And yeah, I'd let a couple months we'll do follow up. Fantastic. Sounds great. All right, Mark. Thank you. Our next episode will feature singer-songwriter Michelle Lewis, one of the founders of Songwriters of North America, otherwise known as SONA, which advocates for songwriters to receive the royalty rates they deserve. Michelle gets things done. She's deeply committed to the ongoing fight to make streaming royalty rates more fair to creators. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin. 